goes to the design premise of the simpler you make it, the easier you make it to do the right thing, the more likely it is to happen. Yeah. And that, that's, so. of course, the foundation of entire brands like OXO, right? OXO was founded mm -hmm. by Sam Bobber, who founded Bobberware, like a, a legendary kind of cookware designer. And as he and his wife aged, they loved to cook together. She developed arthritis. And so he developed OXO as a way to create uh, products that were easier for people with arthritis to use. But guess what? They're easier for all of us to use. And that's why if you open up your kitchen drawers, I'm sure there's at least one OXO product in there. Welcome to Message Engineer for the MedTech Startup. Do you want a clear message that resonates? Compelling message that scales? Competitive message that nails your unique value? On this show, we interview guests across medical device disciplines to help you communicate and message powerfully. Your host, Maureen Schaefer, is a three-time vice president of marketing with 30 years of experience creating money-moving messages from startups to IPO and beyond. Here's your host, Maureen Schaefer. Welcome to the Message Engineer podcast. Today, we are very excited to have with us the inventor of the Foot Defender, Jason Hanft, who is also a podiatrist, has been involved in more than 100 clinical trials, 50 peer-reviewed journal publications, and the holder of multiple patents and trademarks. Uh, we also have with us Michael DiTullo, who has 30 patents to his name, has designed iconic footwear products and brand experiences for the likes of Nike, Jordan, and Converse, uh, has been a committee member at SFMOMA, on the board of directors for the Design Museum in Boston, and a juror of the International Design Society of America, or IDSA. So welcome to the Message Engineering Podcast. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Glad to be here. Great. So we always start with what I like to call the define the word warm up. So I have a few words uh, for each of you. And if you could share your uh, kind of your thoughts and definitions around them, that would be really helpful. You got it. The first word is marketing. <laughs> do you want me you want me to go, you want me to go first, Jason? You want to buy you a little time? <laughs> Please, please, Michael. I, it's a little bit of a cliche, um, but you know, when I think when marketing is at its best, it's, it's just telling the truth, right? And if a company, an organization has done the work to produce a quality product is designed around the way people actually live their lives to help them, all marketing has to do is to tell the truth. When a company hasn't done those things, that's when it gets uh, into the, the things that I think the negative associations with marketing come into play. Well, you can tell Michael and I have worked together too long because my response was going to be the devil's in the details. Yeah. <laughs> if marketing is a true representation of product and or mission, it's the lifeblood of a company. If marketing is a inaccurate representation, it becomes challenging to deliver on the marketing promises. Great, great definitions. And we'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, second one is, and so Michael, will, Jason will make it a little easier for you. We'll go, Michael, with this one, uh, message or messaging. Uh, I, I love, so my background is as an industrial designer, um, but I work across brand as well and positioning and 
I love even starting the product development process with messaging because to me, messaging is about not only what we say to people outside our organization, but what we say to ourselves. And so messaging when done right applies so much focus to everything that we do. And if, if that work isn't done up front to, to clearly define that, that's when there's just kind of wasted efforts going off in so many different directions because it's really hard to score if you don't know where the goal is. Great. Spot on, spot on. Um, Keystone is my response to that. Um, without understanding and buy-in on a message, even startups fail. Um, multinationals may not fail, financially successful companies may not fail, but they tend to flounder when messaging is inaccurate, poorly executed, and not facing forward. Um, so we have a inside defender and our folks using our products, messaging is paramount. Our whole mission is saving limbs, healing limbs. If we aren't able to express that, we're just a pretty device. Uh, yeah, I love I love that. And again, we'll, we'll come back to that. But that idea of, uh, I've always said that marketing is more than pretty brochures because that word pretty gets applied to a lot of marketing and promotional things. Uh, and that is, that that's the very last thing you should be thinking about when it comes to that. So yeah, I love those definitions around message and marketing. Um, the last one, Jason, we'll start with you because I found it really interesting how you, your origin story and how you thought about this, uh, which is patient. So patience, I have none. Patient. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so I think the, uh, the, the medical community, not just physicians, but companies, manufacturers, sellers, um, have forgotten that the end user, the key decision maker in every decision in medicine is the patient. And that has happened not because they're evil people, but because the process has gotten in the way of hearing the patient. And we truly built this company on what the patient said. Great, great point. Great point about really hearing the patients. And I think for, for me, just to, to build on that, really, um, you, you know, it's been wonderful to kind of work with Jason over the past four or five years um, because I've learned so much about medical devices and the medical system as a whole. And I, I think, you know, patients are humans, right? People are not their diagnosis. So we might be thinking, of someone is like, oh, they, they're a diabetic, they have diabetes, but that, that diagnosis might be just a, is going to be just a small part of who they are. So what we're doing has to be centered around them, not as a patient, not, not as someone with a diagnosis, but as a person. And if we think of them as a, as a, a fully three-dimensional human, we'll design a better solution for them. That's yeah. Great, great, great points. Great, great points. I think uh, 
From the standpoint of the patient as the decision maker, you described the patient as the decision maker and the end user, and really hearing the patient. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit about how you came to develop this product and how the patient's perspective and your kind of view as a podiatrist weighed into that? So Foot Defender came about because of my failures. Um, not only myself, but many people in the wound care space. Um, we have a plethora of tools available to us in the last 20 years. Yet with all those tools, our amputation rate, and that's in the United States, not just in my clinic, in the United States, the amputation rate continues to rise. And that's a rate, so it's not dependent on the number of people with the disease, right? So. Mm -hmm. 20 years ago, you were less likely to have an amputation than you are now from diabetic foot wounds. Wow. Even with the invention of spectacular medical devices. So once this data became clear in my own clinic, I sought out an answer. It's one of my personality defects that if something's happening, I have to know where it, why and where it's coming from. So after going the normal route and coming up with answers that were unacceptable or in inaccurate, um, my wife, who's a whole lot smarter than me, and one of my dear friends said, why don't you ask the patients? And that's what we did. And when we asked the patients, they told us the answer, why the amputation rate hasn't changed. We were asking them to do things they were physically incapable of doing. That was 92% of them said that out of 5,000 interviews. Wow. And the second most common thing was if they could get help and get the products on, there was a stigma associated with them that allowed them not to be whole, not to do their daily activities of living. So they chose not to do it because they couldn't be themselves. They were marked with a disease. Two things I had never considered as a physician. Right, that they were unable to use it, done in 92% out of 5,000 folks. And right. that's the stig the very outward stigma, right, of, of wearing something that might help. I thought you mentioned something about, you had had a quote in one of the articles that I read uh, that talks about, you know, zero, I'm going to paraphrase here. <laughs> something like zero percent of patients benefit from something they don't use now this is michael's famous quote ah um, okay. go ahead michael <laughs> i didn't say it's like yeah it doesn't uh if it stays in the closet it helps zero percent of people right and so if if it's not worn it's not going to be effective uh and and obviously the more we can increase uh the frequency of use the greater the efficacy is going to be and so that was aesthetics wasn't about making it pretty. It was about influencing people uh, to use the product, not, not most of the time, every time, every day. And, and so, you know, how could we convert someone from you know, looking at somebody wearing this product and saying, oh, what's that? To like, whoa, what is that? Make them feel like there's a sense of pride because everybody wants to feel cool right everybody wants to feel good they want to have a little bit of a sense of pride in themselves 
uh, and nobody wants to attract kind of negative attention. So if you're prescribed wearing a product that looks like a science project on, on your leg, um, even if it means losing your leg, as extreme as that is, it's, it's not going to work. So can I, uh, oh, go ahead. I, I, not to interrupt you, but um, two quick points. In my career, I've had a number of patients who said, I am not going to wear that. Take my leg now and let's get over this. Even though they will lose a body part and there's a mortality rate associated with it, 50%. Wow. But that's how important this appearance is, number one. And I want to backtrack for a second, if, if you allow me. The responsibility of asking patients and engaging them is not just physician or professional. In my perfect world, everybody, whether it's a sales rep, a hospital administrator, everybody involved in the care of that person should be asking when they engage with patients, can you? Right? Because you know, if I have the latest and greatest device, but it requires you to do things you are unable to do, to Michael's point, it's not going to help you, and you are going to suffer the complications of that disease or illness that we're trying to help you with. So that should be a paramount approach, not a afterthought. Our, our outcomes across the board, right? Can you not eat salt? Well, I don't know what salt is, right? That would help to know that to start with. It, re it reminds me, I was the president of the uh, local, like Washtenaw County, it's like Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti, well, of the American Heart Association, kind of as a volunteer. And I remember thinking, do we know, as a board, do we understand what, what the key things are in, in this particular case, fat? And I, I pulled out a couple, you know, I brought a croissant that I bought that I was not going to eat. And I said, you know, this versus a bagel, which one should you eat and why? And people were, they didn't know. And it was, it was surprising to me, the kind of base level of knowledge um, and how important it is to, as you say, ask that question, like, can you do this? Do you understand this? How would you? Um, you're and I think it comes down to that simple level, right? We, we have all this highbrow science and all of us get off on that, right? Wow, look at this statistic, look at this science. But, you know, simple as sticking your finger for blood sugar. Show me you doing this. And they pick up the device and don't know where to put it. And they press the button at the wrong time. And then, by the way, they don't have any income, so they can't afford the test strips. So that question will get to the challenges to success way faster than the current practice, which is do this. You'll get better. So I, I think that engaging and involving the end user, the patient, has to change in our system. That was that was one of the things I loved the most about working with Defender uh, because Jason has a clinic. And so I, uh, I as a designer, every designer is a little different. I, I love to collaborate. Like I see myself as my expertise is in uh, finding a creative solution, not in knowing all the answers. And so my that's who my clients are, right? My clients are the experts. And I remember years and years ago, I did some work uh, for Gillette and they have their headquarters in Boston 
And in the first floor of their headquarters, they have something called the shave lab. And literally they have people coming in every day to shave. So if you make a prototype, they can get 20 people to test it in a day. Uh, And having access to that, you know, it's just like one of my mentors who who was from uh, Procter & Gamble, uh, Gillette's parent company, he would always say, why guess when we can know? And Jason having a clinic, even just with the early sketches of the foot defender, I would send Jason sketches and he would show them to patients. And he'd be like, well, I showed 50 patients in two days and here's what they think. And again, we were that getting to that why guess when we could know. It felt so good to be making these decisions on, on input that was always coming from the person who's going to be using the product. Yeah, that's tremendous to have that kind of real time almost kind of feedback or very, very yeah. near time feedback and kind of as, as you evolve. Um, I think that with, with patients, you talked about the idea of aesthetics. And so oftentimes in, in med tech, we talk about, hey, marketing makes the, what I tended to call the functional product description, like what it mm-hmm. should do, mm-hmm. right? But not to specify how, and leaving the how to kind of R&D to mm-hmm. figure out the best way to manifest how, right? With manufacturing and cost considerations. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit, and you're talking a little bit about behavior, right? When you're saying, can you, you're getting to this idea of behavior, not just what do we know and what does the data say, but are people going to use it? Are people going to do it? And it really gets to behavior. And so you talked about aesthetics driving behavior. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you think about that. And what your process is for that and how you came to kind of the current design. Well, in design, there's kind of a cliche saying of, you know, form follows function. Um, And I I think of things a little bit differently. I think of form is function and function is form. They're they're one thing. And every every decision that we made on the foot defender was both, like even down to these little red embroidered moments that are an aesthetic moment right but that is what tells you where to where to adjust it right it's just like mm-hmm. it, your eye goes to these places and you know that's where you pull this thing off right because um, red we're all attuned to the, you yeah. know being most focused on red right and and even just you know on the bottom here there's these kind of donut shapes and that calls attention to inside here there's a a, a proprietary viscoelastic material that we developed uh, and trademarked the name absorbium that are in mm-hmm. below these areas. You can't see it, but I wanted to visually just give you a sense of what's going on there. Um, it's a symmetrical design, right? There's no left or right, as with most of the competitor boots, but we spent a lot of time getting this shape right so that once you're wearing it, you can't even tell that it's symmetrical. It just doesn't look like a duck build thing. Mm-hmm. And then I think one of the biggest aesthetic things was the spat. So. Most of the competitor, all the competitive boots have at least three straps, sometimes five. They're really hard to put on, even if you have full mobility and full feeling in your fingers, they're hard to put on. Now imagine you're a bigger person, you have trouble reaching down there and you can't feel so well. And I remember- Diabetic neuropathy or, right? You have some of the other things that are commonly, see commonly in some of the older type one diabetics. So, so in, in fact, um, 
my wife was using a competitive device that had three straps and this kind of spat that you had a center and oh, it was just so difficult. It was like a five minute process to put on. And I, I said to Jason, I'm like, can't we just remove the whole front of the thing with this, this like giant spat that comes completely off? And he, you know, Jason was like, let's, I don't know, but let's try it. Let's build some prototypes. Um, I, the engineers we were working with were like, I don't think it's going to work. I'm like, I don't know if it's going to work either, but let's try. And in one of those rare moments, uh, it worked on the first <laughs> it worked on the first try. I, wow. I always think like the things that you think are going to be easy in the process tend to be the real headaches and the things you think are going to be hard sometimes just you're like, oh, wow, that actually went so much better than I thought. But we yeah. were able to to hide this, this carbon fiber um, member here that is just like really integrated and again becomes a part of the aesthetic. You can just kind of see the little bits of carbon fiber. So trying to make all the functional things um, a part of the aesthetic. And that's kind of what I learned at my time at Nike. You know, I spent about eight years at Nike working on Jordan, Converse, and the Nike brand. And everything that we were trained to do was about aesthetically exaggerating function, right? You think about like a Nike Air Max bubble. It's taking mm -hmm. a functional thing and celebrating the heck out of it until it becomes the thing everybody's talking about. It becomes part of the aesthetic, right? That's right. Yeah. That's a so Michael frequently tells, sorry for interrupting, frequently tells a story that I think hits home with all of us about aesthetic and utilization. Mm -hmm. And this is the BlackBerry versus the iPhone, <laughs> right? So we all were in love with our BlackBerry's functionality until the iPhone came out. And if you remember back in the day, the original iPhones didn't work so well. Right, it's true. But man, were they cool, right? And mm -hmm. that cool was the aesthetic and the interface, right? Not the functionality. Yet iPhone took over the market. And we all, you know, there were revolts at companies, even at Nike. Give us an iPhone. We're not using these Blackberries anymore. Um, all because of the same statement Michael made when we started, which was, I, wow, what's that, right? So for everyone adding on aesthetic, right? Developing, manufacturing, and then going, wait, we gotta make it look better. You just put the horse behind the cart. Yeah, you already lost. <laughs> right. You, the, the patient engagement, the end user engagement, is driven by the aesthetic. That's a great point. The patient kind of perception and use is driven by the aesthetic. And the BlackBerry. So the data. And the iPhone analogy, I think, you know, BlackBerry is really just, I mean, I had one, right? We all had one. That was yeah. a standard thing. Um, looking back and thinking about the iPhone, I bought the Gen 2, Gen 1. Uh, was that it's really, it was a glorified typewriter, mm -hmm. right? And the iPhone was like a whole but new it was, world. Right. The other, the other part of that is it's not just me talking. So the folks at Baylor College of Medicine have done a technology acceptance study and published an article in the journal Sensors on the Foot Defender. And they asked patients, do the aesthetics, which one of these devices, looking at traditional 
pneumatic cam walkers and the foot defender. Which one of these devices will you use? Which one of these devices will help you the most to heal? Which one of these devices is going to be easiest to use, even though they'd never used it? So they asked those questions. And on every one of them, the foot defender, they'd never used it. They'd never read any data. But every one of them, foot defender was 50% or more better than the competitors in acceptance, purely based on the appearance. And look at it's the category we're working in, too. Uh, you know, we think of it as, in the medical world, we think of it as a protective device. But for for our person, for our human, this is a piece of footwear. This isn't a wrist brace or a knee brace. This is going to replace one of their shoes, and they're going to be probably wearing a pair of sneakers on the other foot. And footwear is one of the most aesthetically intense uh, aspects of industrial design. You couldn't get more different aesthetics that people get to choose from. And then you're going to give them this Frankenstein thing that locks up their leg. You're not going to use it. I mean, look, look at the three of us on this call. We're almost like a perfect example for this. All three of us are wearing glasses, right? They're functional. We, we wouldn't be wearing them if we didn't need to wear them. Just like a foot defender, you wouldn't be wearing it if you didn't need to wear it. Yet right. our three glasses couldn't be more different from each other because they're on our faces. This is, this is the, the expression of ourselves that we're sh literally we're showing the world on this podcast. Now imagine walking through the, the supermarket uh, with this big medical device on your leg. And you know, you're gonna want something that makes you feel at the very least that you fit in uh, and if possible, makes you feel good. I think that's really a, a great point that we do make choices based on aesthetics all the time uh, over function. Like these glasses, I continue to buy even though they break every six months. <laughs> like one of the arms breaks off every six months based on folding and unfolding. And I have four pair of them right now. And then when one breaks, I buy another one. Yeah, yeah. So because but you love the look. Right. I I'm like, if I'm wearing readers, I'm wearing something that I really like. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's uh it's interesting to think about I that idea of aesthetics. That. And I think, you know, back to it changing not even just behavior, it changes behavior, right? Which is where I started asking. But what it does is it changes perception, mm -hmm. which changes behavior, right? When you talk about the Baylor College of Medicine study and putting the, you know, uh, the foot defender side by side with kind of the typical boot uh, and what people thought about healing, right? And scoring 50% higher on it based on what it looked like. And, and aesthetics. It's something, this, these judgments are something that we do all day, every day, mm -hmm. and we don't ever think about it. We don't even realize we're doing it. I remember having a similar conversation with a client, very smart guy, uh, you know, bachelor's and master's from Ivy League schools, CEO of a, of a, of a big uh, consumer electronics company. And he was like, you know, Michael, I'm not really affected by aesthetics or marketing messaging. And I was like, oh, really? What kind of car do you drive? What kind of car do you drive? He's a Maserati. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're not affected by marketing or aesthetics at all, clearly. And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, it's like the only reason you would buy that car was for that. I was like, has that car ever had any problems? And he's like, yeah, within the first six months, it needed all the spark plugs replaced. I was like, okay, so it's functionally a bad decision. But you chose it because of aesthetics and messaging. 
thousand percent. Right? We are all affected whether we whether we want to be or or not. So I think assuming that the patients in the you know, in the situations where the patient is choosing, let's say, you know, the medical device or the, the medical tech or the DME, uh, the durable medical equipment in this case, then it makes all the sense in the world to understand human behavior mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, human behavior, right? Mm -hmm. which is affected by what things, our perception and what things look like. And, and Jason, well, I, well, we have the advantage of our product actually works better too. <laughs> so there is that, right? All right. So the the proofs in the pudding. Mm -hmm. We have almost a hundred years of bad data. You have a diabetic foot wound in the United States. You're more likely to lose your leg than you are to heal that wound in the United States. So what we've been doing isn't working, and some of it's technical and mechanical, but the real reason is utilization. So, you know, the, the estimates are 85% of patients with foot wounds leave the clinic in the same footwear they came in in. Wow. Meaning they're in a shoe that may have caused their wound. And they're leaving in that shoe. They and they're leaving them. in that shoe. And the icing on the cake is, there's zero data that shows a shoe can heal wounds consistently. There's not one tier one randomized multicenter blinded controlled clinical trial that shows a shoe can heal wounds consistently. And I think the, yeah, that's, that makes all the sense in the world. And I think particularly when you come down to, I read some data that, uh, and it may have been updated, this is a 2007 study, um, that diabetic type one diabetes they had the lifetime incidence of twenty five percent for developing. So that's type two diabetes. Uh, type two, um, sorry. Right. And right. developing a foot ulcer, and that it was about forty five thousand um, dollars per the, patient for the over yeah the course right the course of their treatment to contribute. It's doubled. It's it's eighty eight thousand oh. dollars per okay. wound. The cost of an amputation, the global cost of a below the knee amputation is half a million dollars, 500,000. Um, and, and the numbers are astonishing. Right now, one in 10 Americans are diabetic. Multiply that by 25%, get a wound. 25% of that group gets an infection. That is the pathway to amputation. Infections happen exponentially higher over time. So if you have a wound that's open for more than four weeks, goes up. If you have it open for six weeks, it then doubles the risk of infection again. So time to healing is the key. And right now in this country, only 36% of the wounds, that's the best number, 36% of the wounds are healed at 20 weeks. 20 weeks. Wow. So... We now know why we have such a high amputation rate, because we're not addressing wound healing fast enough. And I love, I, one of the things I love working with Jason, not just in industrial design, but across marketing as well, is he's always sending me new case studies and, you know, the foot defender is healing wounds, not in 20 weeks, but in 20 days. And I don't know if Jason, like just some of those case studies you sent recently, you're like, 
kind of blowing me away. You know, that... As with new products, we've gotten the worst of the worst cases for our, you know, we've only been in market for a year, but um, you know, we, we've had wounds that are three years old that haven't closed. Wow. And 20 days later, 26 days later, using the foot defender, the wounds are healed. And it's not magic, it's offloading. Now, Paul Brand in the 50s, my mentor and the, probably the forefather of offloading, said, you distribute the force, you decrease the amount of pressure on the foot, wounds are going to heal. He proved it. There's a million clinical trials for casting that works. Casting has its problems, and only 2 to 3% of the people who can get a cast do. And part of the reason is patients are resistant to having eight pounds of plaster thrown on their leg, and you can't take it off for at least a week. Now, so imagine taking your pants off to go to the bathroom with a cast on. And every step you have to take, you're in a cast. I love casting. It's a wonderful tool, but it's only penetrated 2%. So 98% of the people with wounds need appropriate footwear, mm -hmm. not a shoe. They need something that works as, as we started, you know, you were talking about at the beginning of this, that people will, we haven't, I don't think you used the word adoption yet, but this idea of patients adopting or patients agreeing, the end user deciding that this is something they want to do, right? When you have the kind of can you. And so um, can you talk a little bit about, I thought one of the things was really interesting was this kind of how you rethought the idea of this kind of rocker motion. Um, I have worn a boot. <laughs> I did, I can't remember what the injury was. They said I was a typical ballet dancer in injury. I Probably a, stre a stress fracture or a sesamoid fracture. Yeah, I ripped something off some metatarsal. I don't remember what it was. Uh, and they put me in a boot. They told me I had to wear it for, I think it was four weeks. I think I lasted 10 days in that thing. Right. So, and you're healthy and agile. And so, so talk, rocker, can you talk a little bit about, yeah, how you thought through this sure. idea of offloading that you said has been a concept that people have understood for a very long time. And why? So, the traditional shoe has a rocker to it. Mm -hmm. Right. And most boots have a severe rocker to them where the outsole is curved. Right. Um, the principle, the guiding principle for offloading, decreasing the force on the bottom of the foot is the more contact you make, the less pressure you have in any one area. Um, and the body responds very well to low areas of pressure applied slowly over time. And if you don't believe me, look at a pregnant woman, right? So, you know, if you drop a nine pound bowling ball in somebody's uterus, bad things are gonna happen. <laughs> The tissues can't handle the speed the force is applied. It's called strain rate mm -hmm. or the amount of force, right? The maximum force. Tissues can't handle it. But if you slowly stretch them over time, they can adapt. Same thing with the bottom of the foot. And this is Paul Brand's whole mantra was make more contact, disperse the force. Mm -hmm. And then some of the things from casting, where if you slow down the speed at which the leg moves forward, the tibia bone, mm -hmm. that's where that spat comes into play, you then have less weight on the front of the foot, which is where most wounds happen, when the patient's body weight is on. So just some small tricks in the design. But when the rocker comes into play, 
Initially, the rockers were developed for shoe wear with people with problems in the front of their foot. And when you wear two shoes with rockers, you end up walking almost like when you walk in wooden clogs, right? You walk stepping like this, mm. which takes all the pressure off the front of your foot. Mm -hmm. But when you have one, a boot or a shoe with a rocker and one without, when the other foot comes off the ground, all of your force loads the front of the foot to get balance. So in the walker world, with fractures, it doesn't really matter because you want to encourage normal walking pattern. We don't want to encourage a normal walking pattern. We want a walking pattern that allows the leg to slow down, delays the body weight from loading on the front of the foot so there's less load over time. We want you to walk stepping flat on a large surface so you have less high areas of force over a larger area. So we removed the traditional rocker which has probably been the number one question we've gotten, um, whether it's from professionals, patients, designers, footwear designers, where's the rocker? And the answer is the rocker's in your footwear when you wanna walk normally. We don't want you to walk normally. We want you to heal your wound with the most contact and the least force possible. It's, it was a really interesting project to work on because we were trying to achieve a lot of the things that are the opposite of what I'm trying to achieve when I work on performance piece of athletic footwear, right? Like in, in athletic footwear, flexibility is desired, right? So that you can, you, the foot can move. You're running. We don't, we don't want that. In normal piece of, of footwear, um, having that, that, that speed, the speed of the leg is desired. We want to slow the leg down. And so I had to basically just go in the opposite direction of all of my training to solve the problems. And it took us a, a lot of years of trial and error to get there. But, you know, the result, if I can hold this up, is just, you know, these are uh, kind of maps showing the pressure on the bottom of the foot and the foot defender here uh, compared to some of the competitors. And this is just, you know, to Jason's credit, like he, he just wouldn't stop until this was looking like this, you know, it was just like, this wasn't going to be good enough. And I, I, I don't, I, it's a pleasure to work with a client with that kind of tenacity because it's, it's not often. Yeah. There was a balance though, because we can make a better offloading device. Mm -hmm. It's possible, but we can't make one that patients can use as well. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So to get a longer lever arm, you can stop the foot from carrying weight, but then you got to go past the knee. Right. And, and I don't know about you, but a rigid boot above the knee, that's difficult for me to put on. Right. So this was that very, very difficult balance, you know, 39 or more iterations to get to that point where patients said, this is easy to use. And we got data that, that showed we were having significant impact on force reduction. That's amazing. I, I love the, uh, the 39 iterations through, right? Until you got to that point that... It, that there are always trade-offs, mm -hmm. right? And there are always trade-offs between kind of the engineering and kind of the marketing or R&D and manufacturing and marketing and all the other people are often part of this, right? Clinical and regulatory. You're trying to get to that like optimal kind of best of all worlds. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it makes sense that you gave, that there was, a, there was some give on the perfection 
of kind of offloading and distribution in order to increase adoption, right? If we think about, I mean, there's so many issues with uh, adoption, if we write drug compliance for one, right? How much do we need yeah, to do you had, if, that? But it's, it's If you had to take your medicine 27 times a day, what's the likelihood of that happening? Right. right? So that's why they put coatings and other binders in there. So they have delayed release. So you can take it one or two times a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same thing here. Yeah, it's, ado- it's like, yeah, it's adoption. There's no use in developing something that would work perfectly that no one wants to use. And it's been cool to see how users use it differently than even with all the work we've done, users use it differently than we thought. Like the putting it on and off, like it has six tabs that are really easy to undo and, and redo to adjust. Um, and we're like, that's great. We've made it so easy. But Jason, tell, tell Maureen how people use it. So we, the first 50 patients in our pilot study, um, firstly, 49 of them wouldn't give us the boot back. So we knew we had something. Um, but the first half a dozen or more, I've spent hours showing them how to use it, opening it like a book, letting it close and touching the tabs. And the second visit, they're like, Doc, we just adjust it and put our foot in and out like a cowboy boot. <laughs> I'm like, great. We spent three years working on this closure. And <laughs> Good to know. you just you just showed us the best way to use our own product. Thank you. Uh, uh, yeah, it's my son and his uh, Nikes. Yeah, he's like, why out. do I have to tie them every day? Well, and, and my take a look at slide it out, and I'm like, oh, yeah. I take a look at what companies have done because the older population and the younger population have both said, why do I need to tie my shoes? So now they're uppers that look like socks, and companies that have easy access. Forget about the handicapped or disabled group that can't get in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, stepping into shoes is the norm. Mm-hmm. So finally, 20 years after people said, I don't want to tie my shoes anymore. Finally, their company's solely based on stepping into your shoes and going. Yeah, the simpler, I mean, I think that goes to the design premise of the simpler you make it, the easier you make it to do the right thing, the more likely it is to happen. And that, that's, so. of course, the foundation of entire brands like OXO, right? OXO was founded mm-hmm. by Sam Bobber, who founded Bobberware, like a, a legendary kind of cookware designer. And as he and his wife aged, they loved to cook together. She developed arthritis. And so he developed OXO as a way to create uh, products that were easier for people with arthritis to use. But guess what? They're easier for all of us to use. And that's why... If you open up your kitchen drawers, I'm sure there's at least one OXO product in there. Um, and so I think that's kind of our philosophy too. Like, can we, can we, can we, we've done a, a lot of research and development in creating this product. You know, there's a lot you can't see. There's like 22 millimeters of different materials under the foot here to create something that's incredibly um, functional, but also incredibly comfortable. And now that we've done that, eventually that will influence other products that are, are more approachable for, for other people, not just when they need to be prescribed something. Would you talk a little bit, one of the things I, uh, I, I, a lot of my clients talk about or ask for help on is naming. And so one of the things I thought was really intriguing was one that you went with a very kind of straightforward name, right? Foot Defender. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that idea of defending. And then the other one that I found to be really interesting was absorbium. Makes me think of vibranium. Mm-hmm. Right? It was already, vibranium was taken. That's why we wanted to absorb it. <laughs> <laughs> no, or else why not? We did a lot of work to get to absorbium actually together. So that was a, that was a good, I, I think like, again, it's just, I think the best um, product name ever in the history of the world is macaroni and cheese. Cause it's like, it's the name of the product. It's the ingredient list. You like macaroni, you like cheese, you're going to love our macaroni and cheese. And so to me, the simpler, the better, because people are busy. They, they, they have a life to live. Um, I love this phrase uh, in, in British kind of patent and trademark infringement cases. They have this, this, this uh, saying, uh, I don't know how official it is. This is lore that's been passed to me, but they would be like, it. and I, I think a little bit like when you, with messaging, product naming, uh, it, it should be like that, where people are like, oh, what is the cushioning in Nike Air? It's Air, <laughs> right? And so uh, Jason already had Foot Defender when he got to me, so he could describe how he got there. But when he told me what it was, I actually just really loved the idea because it, it is what it does. Yeah, I, uh, I wish I had a creative bone in my body. Um, to think like Michael does, but really it came from the simplicity, right? What do we want to do? That was the whole idea. Um, And Foot Defender is not only a name, but again, it's that same brand identity, right? So what are we doing as a company? What is our mission? We're defending feet. We're defending what matters, keeping these feet attached to people so they don't die. It's really that simple. That's where the name came from. Um, Absorbium, Michael and I and a few other folks worked on for a while because we wanted to express this new materials ability, very simply. This is a complex viscoelastic polymer that had never before been on this planet, right? That means nothing to 99.9% of the people in the world, right? So saying that, Again, putting that on marketing pieces, it'll impress a scientist. It'll impress shoe dogs, you know, folks into shoe wear. It'll impress polymer scientists, but it's going to have no impact on the people who need to understand that there's a special absorbing product in this device. And that's that goes back to that earlier statement I made with we're trying to do the opposite of what most performance footwear does. So if you think about you know, Nike Air or Adidas Boost or pick your cushioning technology from Reebok, New Balance, uh, you know, Puka, what have you, it's all about energy return, right? Like an EVA foam, which is what most running shoes have, it's all about um, energy kind of returning to you, bouncing back. We're doing the opposite of that. We're trying to absorb forces. Uh, and, and springing back slowly so that they're ready to absorb forces again and again, right? So you have kind of energy return cushioning in, in athletic footwear. You also have things like memory foams that, that feel good at initial touch. But then once your foot, once the memory foam has adapted to you, it cannot absorb anymore. It just stays put. It becomes basically a rock. So we were, had a very unique uh, functional parameter that we were trying to, to seek. And so we wanted a name that, again, 
gets that mac and cheese naming that describes what it does. That this material does uniquely is absorb the forces. Yeah, I think uh, both of those struck that both those names, foot defender and absorbium, struck me as uh, very brilliant because they embody what you're trying to convey simply. And I think that's one of the most challenging things to do with any kind of med tech, whether it's digital health or straight up medical device or, you know, durable medical equipment, such as, such as the foot defender is to take the complex and simplify it so that everyone gets it at base value without reading the instructions for use, without, you know, watching an hour webinar, without having to do those things. Well, and that's what yeah. Apple trained us to do, right? It's just like, I remember the first time I ever got an iPod. It was when the iPod first came out. And I think I had gotten like a good bonus that year or something from work. And I was like, I'm going to get an iPod. And I remember we had dinner plans that night. And my wife, Christina, was like, don't mess with that iPod because we have to go out to eat. And I was like, yeah, okay, I won't. And she's getting ready. And of course, I unboxed the iPod and connected it <laughs> to my laptop. And it said, do you want all your MP3 files to be on your iPod? And I was like, yes, I do. And she came down and she's like, I thought I told you not to mess with that thing. And I was like, you know, I think I'm done. I literally clicked yes. And that was it. <laughs> and that's what, that's what we want like this, right? Because, you know, no matter how much time you spend training someone in a clinic on how to use it, at the end of the day, what they have is, is this in their home every day. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is at the end of the day, this is the biggest piece of marketing. This is the biggest piece of messaging. This is um, the biggest piece of training that someone's going to have is the product itself. We need to bake all that into it. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, could you talk a little bit about kind of lessons learned from go to market? You said it's gone to the market in the United States a year ago. Could you talk a little bit about your approach to that? Um, how you thought about, you know, with medical medical technology, uh, oftentimes you're thinking about the provider and you're thinking about the patient and sometimes you're already thinking about the insurer. Um, and there are other folks kind of in the decision loop sometimes with those uh, things as well uh, based on the facility and who's, who's actually buying it, so to speak. Um, could you talk a little bit to how you thought about that, how you went to market, um, what succeeded, what didn't go quite as planned? what you learned. So before we go there, um, I want to back up a little. One of the other things with naming is I refuse to allow another acronym in this world. <laughs> <laughs> it is so overused in medicine because it's not easy to explain things. So you end up with these abbreviations of stuff that no one can ever remember, but that's the tool you were supposed to use to know what you're doing. So we didn't want to go that route. Yeah. Um, that's so to answer your question succinctly, um, Mike Tyson, and I don't think many physicians quote Mike Tyson, said, everybody has a plan till they get punched in the face. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened here. Um, we spent many years and lots of money negotiating and debating with the powers that be in the medical reimbursement mm. space um, as to how our product should be classified and how our product should be paid. And regardless of what we did, you know, Michael skimmed over it. You know, there are eight granted patents and 13 pending patents on the foot defender. There's a lot of tech inside that product. Even with 
a skeletonized version of it, the powers that be couldn't overcome the fact that it looks like a boot. So it looks like a boot because a boot's easy to use and works. It doesn't, the functionality isn't based on the boot appearance, right? So, but the payers and the CMS and Palmetto GBA all said after way too many legal fees and way too many debates that this is a boot with a pneumatic pump system. So it gets coded as a boot with a pneumatic pump. Even though they recognized it's unique, it has specific bracing and materials and novel technology, we think it looks like a boot, so it is a boot. So it, it got coded, it's a class one product, it got coded as a pneumatic cam walker. Pneumatic cam walkers, that code that allows for reimbursement, um, it's universal. Doesn't matter if your cam walker is lower than your ankle and made of two stirrups of plastic and has no footbed, or if it's exquisitely high tech, it's all covered the same. That being said, at least it's a billable code and a reimbursable code. So we are able to function in the insurance world of medicine. Mm -hmm. um, that was challenge one, go to market. Challenge two is the durable medical equipment channel is um, what comes after fragmented. It looks a lot like the glass that I dropped the other day on my hard floor in the kitchen. It's Adam. There's just powder, right? Yeah, glass There's just powder everywhere. Right, right. So that's what the DME channel is. It's not like you go to three national groups and say, hey, we want to get this in the hands of people treating diabetic foot wounds. What do we need to do to get on your, within a region, Inside a city, inside a zip code, there are multiple DME providers, all of whom have to be engaged to give patients access to product. And this varies on geography, on type of device, right? So there's some DME providers, durable medical equipment providers that only do respiratory devices. They don't do boots that only do bedding or oxygen. It is unbelievably complex and it's impossible for the patient to understand. And it's gotten so challenging that the physicians and the facilities have given up. More than 80% of the wound care centers in the country don't even know how they get their stuff anymore. Wow. So what we found is we'd go to a university-based, so our, our whole key was we had a lot of key opinion leader support mm -hmm. because of our science and our offloading technology and my relationships professionally. And they would go back to their facilities and say, wow, there's this really good thing. Patients are going to love it. It's going to heal wounds, save lives. We need this. And they would go, uh, we don't know how to get it. <laughs> wow. So as a company, we then had to go to those facilities. And we're talking about the top 10 universities in the United States, mm -hmm. not some folks practicing where there's no internet. Right. We'd go there and have to do the detective work to figure out who was providing DME, who was providing L code DME, which is the boot codes, mm -hmm. 
and how to get that to patients. Wow. Um, so that access has been our biggest commercial challenge. Interestingly enough, while we were fighting that, part of our extremely intelligent and talented team said, you know, patients really want this. We should really focus on the patient. And almost equivalent to our professional channel is our direct-to-consumer channel. I was wondering and because, about that. Yeah, because of our aesthetic, because of our message and our mission, not only is it the end user, but about half of our direct sales, we'll call them, are by caregivers or friends mm. of people with wounds. Mm -hmm. wow. And Michael's heard some of the stories and spoken to some of the people. We'll be at professional meetings and we have patients coming up to us going, my sister, my buddy bought me this. Thank you. It's it's really and, really cool to see it rolling out. And uh, yeah, I saw on, on even on like one of our social media posts, somebody commented like, "I saw somebody wearing this the other day," and um, it's really as a designer, this this device has won a bunch of awards, but there's no award better than like just somebody getting what they need out of the, the device. And so that's so exciting. I, I think we talked a little bit earlier about the BlackBerry to iPhone transition. And I, I think you can never underestimate the power of the end user, right? It's, we've seen massive consumerization in, in multiple uh, industries. So like the, the BlackBerry had massive sales, but it was a, it was an IT for largely an IT deployed device, right? Big com they would make big sales mm -hmm. at big companies. And again, this was back to my Nike days. There's probably like 7,000 people on campus back then, and probably three to 4,000 of us had company-issued Blackberries. Well, we all went out and bought our own iPhones with our own money and said, hey, make this work. I don't want this free thing that you got me. Uh, and so, you know, that's what we're experiencing with the boot as well. While we're, we're having some, diff there might be some challenges kind of connecting the pipes behind the wall. While that's happening, people are already saying, like, just give me that boot, I'll buy it myself. <laughs> mm -hmm. Could you, for the for the folks who don't, and I, yeah, DME is uh, right, right for some innovation, <laughs> the, the structure thereof, right? And we see early, I see early uh, interest in hospitals buying DME who are understanding with, so home, right? Home and home care understand like, hey, hold on, I, we lost a lot of business initially when folks moved from inpatient to outpatient right, 20 years ago. And then, you know, we got on the boat a little late with the whole movement to ambulatory surgical centers, right? But now we see things moving towards home, like, hold on just a minute, like, we're not missing that boat. Um, and so I have seen a few hospitals start to pull DMEs into the hospital systems, right? And we see some private equity buying up some folks and looking for standardization from that perspective. So I think it's coming. <laughs> Not sure how fast, but. Um, well, part of the challenge is, regardless whether it's Foot Defender or any other DME product, um, it's a high inventory business. So if you're gonna provide gauze mm -hmm. to patients at home and you're gonna be the DME provider, you better have that supply chain dialed in because you're gonna need X number of pieces every day for X amount of time 
based on how many patients need a piece. So in today's world, and as we learned during the pandemic, just-in-time delivery doesn't work. So if someone's depending on their oxygen bottle and you're waiting on it to be shipped here from the manufacturer, there's a problem. So it's not an easy business from any end. It's not an easy business from the manufacturing end. It's not an easy business from the distribution end. It's not an easy business from the patient understanding. I dare you to figure out where your insurance company pays for DME to be fulfilled. <laughs> call, Go to the back of your insurance card, call your insurance company and ask them. It'll take you a day to get someone who even knows what durable medical equipment is. And then they'll tell you, but your deductible is, and that is usually equivalent to how much you paid in a year for the policy. Mm -hmm. So you now have, let's take in my county, Dade County, I'm in Miami, school teachers, their average salary is right around $47,000. They have a $1,300 deductible for DME, even if you are a diabetic with the need for an amputation. So it's going to take them a payroll or two of their money before they have any coverage. And there's some plans that are allowed to write out durable medical equipment as covered policy. So that $50,000 prosthetic that you need after an amputation is not covered. Oh. Wow. All the more reason to try to prevent it, or once the foot ulcer has occurred, to get right to get on top of it with something that will hopefully solve it. Active rapid healing. And, Active and Jason, rapid healing. Jason talks a lot about how you don't see a lot of hand amputations due to diabetic ulcers, and it's so interesting with the foot. It's so you know, we talked a little bit before we hopped on. It's just so easy to hide. It's so easy to just ignore that wound. Maybe you don't feel it. You're you're shoving it in the shoe. Everything's fine once it's in the shoe, right? And, and in the shoe that's causing the wound, by the way. Um, and so I don't know, Jason. Talk, I mean, you've told me some stories about some of the wounds that you people come in, and if it was on your hand, you just would never let it go that far. And I I think uh, they, it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about you know feet and kind of to your to your point, Michael, like how easy it is to kind of hide or overlook. And I think it'd be interesting to tie it, tie it out to um, physical health, ambulation, and, and kind of physical and mental health and quality of life and what happens there. Well, nobody pays attention to their feet till it disrupts their life, right? <laughs> you, you just expect them mm -hmm. to work and be comfortable. Um, and I can speak from my own experience. I crushed my heel falling off a roof and have a stainless steel heel. So every step I take hurts. I couldn't work. I couldn't run until I created one of our other products called the Heel Defender that allowed me to stand without pain. Hmm. But imagine not feeling pain and getting injured. That's where the diabetic patient falls in. So um, the because it's an issue or a expected functional part of your body, it frequently gets mistreated. And don't believe me, ask any woman that wears heels how comfortable their feet are. And you'll frequently get, oh, these are really comfortable heels. I only get blisters. 
Well, if that was a face mask, you wouldn't say, wow, that's a good mask. I only got a blister on my face. <laughs> that's a good one. Um, yeah. And, and when, I used and to when have comes... shoes like that. <laughs> I wear a band-aid. It... I'm like, well, I only need three band-aids after I wear these shoes. <laughs> there you go. Um, and when it comes to the diabetic foot world or patients with diabetes in the foot world, you know, the, the hand amputation rate from diabetic wounds, the, the incidence isn't a whole lot different. A lot of diabetics get hand wounds. They get peripheral neuropathy in their hands and feet, mm-hmm. but the it's stocking and glove distribution. But the amputation rate is 100 times more in the foot than the hand. And there's no physiologic difference, right? They're both at the end of the body. The tissues are the same. The skin is the same. There's no metabolic reason that should be. It's a socio-acceptance reason. One, I'm walking on it. So the force of body weight is slowing down the healing. And two, it's down there in my sock and my shoe. I don't have to worry about it because it doesn't really stop them from doing anything because they don't feel pain until they get an infection and have to end up in the hospital. So part of the problem is a anatomic problem. Part of the problem is a mechanical problem. The other part is just purely the perception that we don't need to do anything to our feet until there is a problem. Yeah. Right, there's no specific prevention or exercises you should be doing or... Well, let's just look at skin, right? How often do you do a daily, nightly, twice a day routine to manage your skin? The largest organ most, in our body, right? right? Most people do. Most females do it more frequently. How frequently does that involve visually inspecting your feet and looking at your feet saying, hey, there's a problem here, right? It's an afterthought. Oh, I got some leftover, name it, retinol, emollient, line thinning cream on my hand and you rub it on your heel. It isn't a part of a normal routine, Mm -hmm. but you wouldn't not treat your nails on your hand or your skin on your hand Mm -hmm. that comes right after your face so what if you could kind of wave a magic wand right and people are paying the appropriate attention to their feet what would they be doing so i think patients with neuropathy patients with diabetes are different than patients who don't have those disease Mm -hmm. states So diabetic patients need to be inspecting their feet at least daily. And if they're unable to use a, I mean, Michael loves this analogy, right? We have fancy technology to look at the bottom of your feet, but a mirror on a stick works just fine. Also a partner, spouse, friend also works really well. So daily foot inspection. Um, The ADA has an excellent guideline that describes exactly what to do for your feet if you have neuropathy, if you're diabetic, and it also changes based on the severity of your disease state. That's the American Diabetes Association. Mm -hmm. But at the very least, inspecting. And then looking at footwear as a, not only a style statement, but also as a functional statement. So if your foot is wider than the shoe, there's a very low probability that it is functioning correctly. 
You wouldn't stick your hand in a glove that only fit on one finger. <laughs> no, we wouldn't. It doesn't mean you can't wear heels, but you need heels that fit on your foot, right? Um, so just some balance between, and I like every shoe. I mean, Michael and I exchange shoe pictures on a monthly basis. Hey, look at this. I appreciate the design of shoes. I appreciate the look of shoes. Mm -hmm. But I also think that if you are at risk, you have blood supply problems, nerve problems, underlying diseases like rheumatoid arthritis and diabetes, it's a protective scenario, not a style scenario. Um, to date, we can't grow digits and limbs back. So we really want to be able to protect as much as possible. Couple, a couple final questions. Um, it's interesting you just mentioned rheumatoid arthritis. So could you talk a little bit about, you know, would the foot defender help at all with folks who have RA or more advanced rheumatoid arthritis? Um, they, with the heel defender, like how, how do you think about RA and feet and what people should be doing? Like best so the foot, the foot defender is indicated for non-displaced fractures, trauma, sprains, and injuries below the ankle, including the ankle, that are stable. So in that group are the inflammatory arthropathies like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis. Mm -hmm. When a joint is unstable and inflamed, they need stabilization. Foot defender is indicated for that. Because of our patented insole and the level of pressure relief, we have a number of non-diabetic patients, non-patients without diabetic foot wounds that have mm -hmm. painful joints or injuries that have called, emailed, texted me and said, I can't believe how comfortable this is to walk in. In fact, today I just sent Michael a, a video of a patient um, that uh, the amount of force reduction and amount of impact reduction yields to feeling like feeling less pain in painful joints and injuries. And the heel defender doesn't really cure anything. It just takes 80% of the force off your heel. So if your heel is painful, when you stand up with a heel defender, the pain is gone. And for people with malaligned joints or chronic inflammation, these products make them feel better. And I would think in some cases may allow, there were, my mom lived with us for a couple of years and she has RA, she has rheumatoid arthritis. And there would be days where she would literally say, I, my feet are not up to walking. And she meant literally like around the park that we face, like our front door faces out onto. Um, and I never understood quite what that was, um, but I think that gets to what you're talking about with RA because I don't, you usually hear hips and knees or finger. So our next product is exactly what your mom needs. And that's ah. the Cloud9. And this is our protective house shoe. It has all of our fancy technology in the insole and the outsole with a device you can slip on and go to the bathroom and go to the kitchen without force and pressure on the foot. Yeah, and, and we're gonna that's do, uh, we're doing a color obviously that matches the foot defender as well. So there you go. You wear this, it's the same height as the foot defender. You can wear it on the other foot. It starts to look like you're wearing more of a matching pair. Um, mm -hmm. and getting back to our, our macaroni and cheese strategy, it's called the cloud nine because it feels like you're walking oh. on cloud nine. That's what it feels like. And, um, 
you know, there's so much we can do with all of this. You know, I, I look at that, that boot that you wore, Maureen, and the competitive boot that my wife got when she uh, fractured her ankle. It had only five millimeters of foam on top of hard plastic. You're like, how, how is that going to like, it's just not going to work. Uh, and so again, the 22 millimeters that we put of three different materials in the foot defender, there's so many other applications for it. Um, and it all started with the product that Jason developed prior the heel defender, right? Which was around his own scenario with his heel. And it's just like, once you start solving a problem, you start seeing all these other applications for that solution. Um, it's kind of funny because my, my wife fractured her ankle and left the, the hospital in a competitive boot. Um, but we, we got her a prototype of a foot defender and it was great having her kind of go back and forth between the two, but mm -hmm. it was a, it was a struggle to get her to wear the competitive one. Cause she was just like, I just, I hate that thing. Cause you know, it has to be on, you know, what it's like when you, when you have an injury like that, it's on 24 seven. Uh, and so just walking to the bathroom is a, a struggle. Yeah. And it, it, uh, to your point about, yeah, aesthetics and that before, I remember when it happened, we were, um, we had kind of already signed to go pick up our dog, right? After, it has to be after eight weeks. So week nine, and so I was wearing the boot, and I wasn't even thinking about it, right? But we have a picture of, like, my son holding the puppy and me, and we're on their, like, grass on the front lawn, and I, of course, posted it on social. And 80% of the people were talking about the dog, and right? And 20% of the people were like, hey, what'd you do to your leg? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was, you know, it's me and dog and cute kid and lawn yeah. and house and 20% of the people focused right in on, which I had forgotten I had on. So at the moment, when I posted it, at least it was in the picture. Yeah, it, stand, it stands out. And then people are, there's a level of concern so I, that goes along with that. I, uh, I travel a lot, speaking the gospel of Foot Defender. And I always travel with one in my hand. And this month, I'm traveling three weeks. So you know I'm on a lot of flights. I have yet to come home with a foot defender because I always run into someone in the airport that says, hey, man, can you replace my boot? They're walking around the airport with yours. Wow. That is That'd a so brilliant, cool. brilliant strategy. And of course, this is, this is what Tesla did, right? Like before Tesla, um, you know, EVs were not cool. It'd be like some little hatchback Nissan Leaf or a Chevy Bolt. And all Tesla did was like, hey, let's, let's take like all this great um, alternative using, you know, alternative power sources and electric energy mm -hmm. and let's put it in a really beautiful thing that people want to own. And that my last in-house job, I was um, working for this guy, brilliant guy, very smart, really into cars, like but Jason and I both are also not into environmentalism per se. And he got one of the first Tesla Model S's ever because he was just like, I just thought it was a cool looking car. And then his electricity bill went up and he was just like, wait a second, now I have to pay more for electricity. <laughs> he got a massive solar installation. And this is, we're talking like, you know, when the Model S first came out, people did not have home solar as much. And he's just like, wow, accidentally, I'm the most environmental person I know. And so that's the power of good design. Can it, can we create better behaviors, not as a sacrifice, 
but as a choice. And so I love that story, Jason, of you walking through the airport and people being like, please, can I have that boot? And, and it's like, that is just, you know, it's not like you had a, a, a marketing sign that says like, this boot solves these problems. People with those problems came to you. Um, one of my other that clients- goes- okay. okay, Maria, I'm sorry. I think that goes to the study you said that was done at uh, Baylor College of Medicine, right? Of the acceptance uh, study that was done, right? Where the perception created this idea that it would heal better. It would provide better performance and function, right? Kind of at, at a glance. And what are we battling in this? You know, I say we, but like marketing, people trying to um, solve problems and sell products or services or combos of products and services, different types of solutions, uh, is, is attention, right? And uh, we all know the attention span is, is dwindle, has dwindled rapidly. So I think that idea that you can see at a glance and you have that perception that, hey, this is something that's going to do better. Yeah. And, and then it actually does, right? It has the data and the science, as you've said, to back that up. Um, that goes a lot way to speaking to the idea of kind of aesthetics. I always ask, mm. is it is it working hard enough, right? So so whether when, when we're either developing, we're working on a, a photo shoot or a brochure or a website or a new new product or down to the Defender logo that we developed. It's just like, is that oh, working cool. hard to tell the story, right? You're like, oh, okay, it's mm. like a shield with a D and that's what I think when, when design and marketing doing its job, like everything in it is, is working hard. You, you couldn't take anything else away. It wouldn't work mm -hmm. and, and adding anything would just confuse it. And in fact, just today I was, and I, I feel like Jason, like you, you like espouse this back to me now, which I love. And I, I sent Jason a, a piece of marketing and he, he was just like, I think we could say that first thing with like half the amount of words. And I was like, you know what? You're absolutely right. Because attention is the scarcest commodity in this century and so we need to we need to act like that yeah i think that's yeah that's amazing um i just have a couple kind of more fun final questions uh uh so i know uh, jason you said you do a lot of traveling you're gonna be traveling three weeks this month uh if you could travel anywhere in the world presuming all of your other Everything else you have to do kind of is like wiped off your calendar. Uh, where would you go and why? My house in Colorado. Peace, rest, relaxation, nature. Great, great, great. Michael, what about you? Uh, boy, I probably, uh, I love to travel too, and I also travel a lot for work, um, but I probably would just eat my way across northern Italy would probably be my choice. <laughs> <laughs> That is a tasty choice. Yeah. You got to build yeah. in a bunch yeah. of exercise with that too. That's right. Yeah, that's, that that's that is a good idea, but a bad choice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, favorite food, Michael. I'll start with you. Uh boy, it's just I'm um, I, you know, as you could probably tell from my last name, I'm not Irish, and uh, I just you know, I just love a good homemade pasta and marinara sauce you just can't you can't go wrong i thought you might say mac and cheese so you said <laughs> I mean, I, oh he's close with pasta yeah uh, i really vegan so. <laughs> 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 it was, 
Jason, what about uh, you? Any like favorite food or food experience? Crazy, crazy fresh seafood. Yeah. What right, qualifies right as of, crazy right fresh? Out of the ocean or freshwater body that day. Um, I've, I'm a fisherman as well, and mm-hmm. you know, catching tuna and eating it on the boat is about as good as it gets. <laughs> I've had fresh tuna hauled out of the ocean the like that evening. It is like another animal entirely. It's completely different experience than something that got in a boat in a from a boat to an ice bucket to a shipping <laughs> container to a restaurant. Right. <laughs> in Ohio. Right. Perhaps frozen right. and defrosted somewhere along the way. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, is there anything that I didn't ask you you were hoping I was going to ask you? How do you get Foot Defender? Oh, how can people get a hold of the Foot Defender or or in contact with either of you? So our website is our portal for all access, um, footdefender.com. And if you are a patient with an injury or a wound, um, ask your professional caregiver how to get a hold of it. And we will gladly engage with them um, on the website or all of our social access as well. Um, if you're really struggling to find us and you just type Foot Defender in any search bar, you will get to us. Terrific, terrific. That's great. Uh, so thank you so much for being on the Message Engineer podcast today. It was such a pleasure having you. And uh, thank you again. It's an awesome conversation. Thanks, Maureen. Maureen, thank you very much.